Hello again, everybody. This is Great Dane Nation, presented by Vegas Insider. I'm your host, Morton Anderson. This week, we're talking to one of my all-time favorite players. He was a difference maker with the Vikings in Philadelphia and his short stint with the Miami Dolphins. He was a dominant, dominant receiver. He's a man who's never short on words. He's my Hall of Fame brother, Chris Carter. And I'm excited for that conversation. But before we get to that, I'm going to welcome in, as always, my sidekick, Tommy Freeze Pops. Tommy, what's going on, buddy? Morton, as always, thanks for having me. And the first place I want to start with you this week is in New England. And no, that is not to bitch about my two and three Patriots. What a surprise. You want to start start New England. What a shocker. Man, it's not about (laughs) the team that I root for. I promise. All right. The Broncos won at Gillette on Sunday by a score of 18 to 12. And you're probably thinking that's kind of a weird score. And that's because Broncos kicker Brandon McManus accounted for all of Denver's scoring in the win. He went six for six to give Denver their second win of the season. And Morton, I feel like if there's anyone in NFL history that has had a game similar to this one, it's you. Am I right? Well, before I answer that, Tommy, I want to... I want everybody listening to understand, and I've said this many, many times, that place-kicking position is undeniable. It is one of the most important positions in the game of football. And again, it was proven Sunday with Brandon McManus, I mean, accounting for all 18 points. You tell me, how important is that position? Having said that, I have had games with five field goals, six field goals, I even think I tried like seven in one game. I think I made six of them. So I've been up there. And, you know, it's a cool feeling being out there because for me, I wanted to get going. If I got an early kick, like an early in the first quarter, I was like, yes, I'm rolling. You know, I I got one under my belt and now let's, let's string a whole bunch together. I'm going to have a good game. Whereas if I missed one early, I struggled more, especially in my earlier years. I was like, man, you know, I hope this doesn't define my game now. I hope I don't shank a whole bunch of them. That was early before I got like a little bit stronger mentally. So getting a bunch of kicks and staying busy through the game, man, it's so beautiful as a kicker. And I fed on that. I really, I enjoyed that. And uh, I had a few, man, five, six field goals, not a lot with six but a lot with four and five, and it makes you sleep real well that night. Makes the locker room recognize, all right, the kicker's here. Mm-hmm. Kicker's mm-hmm. legit. Yeah, Gotta man. give the kicker some props. Got to, baby. You got, I mean, you, it's underappreciated. We, we might as well come out and say that that position has been just like the, the black sheep forever. And everybody thought, oh, we'll just go to the corner bar. And there's a dude sitting right there doing shots of Jaeger. And let's ask him. And he, I'm sure he can kick the football. You know, it happened one time with Tim Mazzetti. He was actually a bartender. And the kicker for the Falcons were having a horrible, horrible stint. And they said, we got to do something. And for some reason, they found this guy, Tim Mazzetti, as a bartender. And I don't know if that's where the the, the stereotype comes from, but that that was a hell of a story. I kind of enjoyed that story. (laughs) Tim Mazzetti, what a legend. Remember him? (laughs) That's unreal. I know. I got to get him on the podcast. From slinging Jaeger to kicking field goals in Fulton County <laughs> Stadium. It doesn't get much better than that, Tommy. That is the absolute dream. So you're saying there's still hope for me. I could maybe make the NFL one day. I just got to get a job as a That's bartender. A, 
I think nose tackle, man. <laughs> and I'm looking at you. Okay. I think nose tackle. <laughs> it, it looks like you you have low gravity. It looks like you're low to the ground, bro. I need you to knock a couple of your front teeth out, though. <laughs> your your teeth are way too nice. So if you can kind of put a couple of gaps in there, that would be great. Okay. All right. So I'll work on nose tackle. There's still hope for me. <laughs> yeah, well, Martin, since we're talking about kickers, I actually want to stick with you on something that happened in college football over the weekend. Oh, man, I in know the, where you're going. Yeah. In the UCF Memphis game on Saturday, mm-hmm. UCF had a game winning field goal opportunity at the end of the ball game, and their kicker missed a 40 yarder. Mm-hmm. And they cut to the sidelines, and one of the kicker's teammates was getting physical with him out of frustration for missing the game winner. Mm-hmm. And mind you, the final score of that game was 50 to 49. Mm-hmm. So there was plenty of opportunity for the defense to step up and make a play at any point in that game. But yeah. that's beside the point. Morton, did anything like that ever happen to you where you missed a kick and someone tried to beat you up? <laughs> All right. Yes. Uh, yes, it did. And, <laughs> and, and let me just get this right. The defense gave up 50 points, but let's point the finger at the kicker. The opponent laid 50, a 50-burger on you, not 15, 5-0. And we're going to go find the smallest guy on the sideline and just crush him. Yeah, that, that's nice. All right. <laughs> to answer your question, playing Jacksonville 96, we're down by two. We're driving for the game winner. I have a 30-yarder kind of. A chip shot. It was raining. It was wet. As I come to the ball, I slip. I push the kick left. Jacksonville wins the game. It allows them to enter the playoffs for the first time in their franchise history. As I'm laying on my back, Robbie Tobig, an offensive lineman, straddles me. And I think, oh, what a nice guy. He's going to help me up. He points to me and says, you lost the freaking game. And he steps over me and leaves me just lying there, <laughs> humiliated. So, yeah, I, I didn't get beat up, but I got, you know, I got abused just by I verbal abuse. And so I have felt that on occasion when I missed, the rare occasion when I did miss, if I may throw that in there. I would get isolated on the bench. I'm not, you know, a lot of people would be hot potato, hot potato, you know. I was the hot potato. Nobody wanted to touch me, man. Nobody wanted to talk to me. They wanted to give me space. And uh, that's just like the nature of the beast. That's the nature. That's what we sign up for. So the quicker you can get on the field and have some success, the better and more inclusive you'll be in the in the team chemistry. So it did happen. But, uh, you know, it's part of the game. It's part of who you are. And I think this kid from UCF, he's going to be fine. And, and the backup quarterback that came over and challenged him, he needs to check himself and, and make sure, unless he puts on his pants differently than everybody else, he needs to check himself. Hey, well, since we're talking about college football, Big Ten football returns this weekend. Your boys, the Spartans, they're hosting the mighty Rutgers Scarlet Knights this weekend. How are you feeling about your boys, Morton? That just rolls off. Your tongue beautifully. The Rutgers Scarlet Knights. The mighty Rutgers Scarlet they, Knights. They conjure up just you know fear in me. Uh, I don't know what we're going to be this year. You know, our quarterback position is definitely up in the air. It's a young team. It's a new head coach. I got to believe that we can beat Rutgers. But the last time we played them, we squeezed out a win seven to six. So there's no guarantees. So I'm just... I don't even know if I can find this game. Hopefully on the Big Ten Network or something. 
but I will be all eyes and all ears to my Spartans. You know that. And I know my son who's up there, who's a junior, will be watching. Can't go to the game. I think it's a home game. It is, yep. Yeah, so there will be no spectators. I'm sure he'll partake in some uh, you know, pregame activities and watch the game, and I will be doing the same. You get the big one <laughs> following week at Michigan. Who? So. Yeah. Well, you know, one at a time, as we like to say in Spartan right. land, you know, Rutgers might be getting ahead of themselves, <laughs> but we don't prefer to look past them. That's right. All focus on the Scarlet Knights, <laughs> one of the legends of the Big Ten. Well, can we move on, man? Yeah, let's get to that conversation with Chris Carter. That's what I was hoping you would say. Let's kick it. I have to say that one of the guys that I enjoy immensely, by the way, was a huge influence on my oldest son, Sebastian, at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Chris Carter took time to spend some time with him. Sebastian has never forgotten that. He was in the 90s. There were no greater receiver out there. Eight straight Pro Bowls. Team of the 90s all-decade team, which I was part of too, so he's my brother there. (laughs) But there were no better receiver in the National Football League in the 90s than Chris Carter. And uh, I'm excited to have my buddy on. Chris, how you doing? You're down in Florida. So how you doing, brother? Thanks for coming on for a few minutes with me, man. I'm doing real good. And probably since the last time, a couple major changes in my life. I let my hair grow. <laughs> okay. Are we looking, are we talking a big afro? What are we? Hey, man, we're, we're going we're gonna to see where it ends up. I'm very, very fortunate that I have almost a full head of hair. So, and it's not gray. So we're going to go with it. Besides that, I got a little puppy. My little puppy, she's she's over here, Coco. Uh, I was terrified with dogs, and and through Corona, uh, my wife talked me into getting a getting a puppy. So she's four months. So just trying to make it through, but but glad to be with you today. Um, anytime you get Hall of Famers together talking about where football has carried them in life, to me that's that's a good day. So when you reached out to me and said, Chris, can you be on my podcast? I was like, Yeah, absolutely. It is my pleasure to be with one of the greatest greatest scoring machines that's ever. Step, step, face in the NFL in a hundred years. And it's just amazing what the love of football and the game of football and the camaraderie and being in the locker room and all that and what it's done for our lives. And and the reason why um, I don't even call it going out of my way at the Hall of Fame, what I did for your family was most families, as I've been associated with the Hall since 2013 when I was selected, they don't have a clue of what you're getting. So we know that the gold jackets, the guy is going to get all the attention. So a lot of times what I try to do during the week is reach out to the families and try to talk to them to try to make sure they're experienced because they'll never be able to get in that locker room again. They'll never be able to go through the hall like that again. We do it. We can take it for granted because we can do it every year. But those family members, those sons, those daughters, those aunts, those uncles, those cousins, it is their weekend. And I just try to make sure that the families know that we care all about each and every one of them, even though they're not the one being enshrined, and make sure that weekend is special for them. So that was the encounter that you talked about with me and your Sebastian. And we try to change on that weekend. We try to change people's perspective of what they really thought of the hall. It's well said. And he was nervous. He had to present me and and Mm -hmm. being on stage with all those legends. And he's a young guy. He was 
late teenager and you know you're taking the time and the guy's taking the time and being approachable I think really was what kind of threw him for a loop because he kind of felt like man these guys they're unapproachable and then you know it was stripped off it was just stripped off when you came up to him you know and he said well I'm just one of the guys man you know (laughs) and and you know here's Chris Carter and he puts his pants on the same way I do and and yeah he He's a great player. It just gave him newfound respect, I think, for not only for who you are, but for how the whole, you know, how the whole thing should be. And it taught him he's going to pass that on now. I I really feel that way that he's going to pass that on to his friends because he knows he's privileged. This is an unusual situation that dad's hanging out with 200 gold jackets. I mean, this doesn't happen on a Tuesday afternoon at Publix. You know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, it, yeah. it, it is great stuff, but the influence of our lives that it has on our family members, on those very, very close to us, they're unique experiences. And we're very, very fortunate that we get both sides of it. You know what? Because next summer we get to go back. We get the chance to welcome in a bunch of other gold jackets and those family members. So, you know, for me, I'm just like Sebastian when I go. I look up to people like Mel Blunt, Lean Joe Green. These guys, they speak into my life. Man, I love talking to them. I love hearing getting older as a Hall of Famer, you know, like what that means. And, and still, as you know, the pressure on excellence that we put on each other, on how we conduct our personal lives, our family lives, our business, our public image. That to me is very, very important. So, you know, every year I go back, I'm like Sebastian. I'm like, man, I can't believe I'm part of this. I can't believe I'm on the stage. I can't believe Willie Lanier is pouring information into me. Jim Brown tells me he saw me on TV. He listened to me on on a radio interview, things like that. So I continue to learn. I consider myself to be a younger Hall of Famer. But it is, to me, the greatest experience that I've had in my life. If you could capture the short period of time we've been in there and the long period of time that we played football, there's nothing to compare it to. You know, there was a time when I wasn't fully baked. What I mean by that is I was immature and I made a ton of mistakes. And I think you relate to this. Mm-hmm. You know, you grew up in Ohio and Middleton in a single parent family with, with lots of brothers and sisters. This was not a layup starting out by any means. Tell me how beginning in those humble beginnings, and I know you've told it a million times, but how that shaped you and how that motivated you. And because you, you know, you had your grandfather's name and you say, and, and at a very early age, you said, I can't go with that one, man. I got to come with a different one. Tell me that whole story. Martin, you're crazy. <laughs> well, um, for those probably 99% of people, even the greatest sports fans don't know that my Real name is Gradual Christopher Carter, and that is my grandfather's name on my mother's side. And my mother, I love her to death. She raised seven kids with no support from a husband or boyfriend or anything like that and no formal education. She actually got kicked out of high school because she was pregnant with my oldest brother, Butch who ultimately went on to be an NBA player, NBA coach. So my mom did a great job raising seven kids. And sports was a huge part of our life. Four boys and three girls. All the boys went to college um, to play basketball, except me. And um, I was the nut that decided to play football. But from an early age, man, sports was a huge part of my life. I always felt like God had put me on earth to do something in sports. And people say, well, that's a kind of narrow-minded, single-minded Well, now that I look back at it, 
I can see why I had to have a narrow focus like that because I could easily been distracted. I had enough obstacles overcoming chemical abuse, substance abuse, alcoholism that not only ran through my home, but it caught me at a very, very young age, diagnosed at 23 to be a recovering alcoholic and drug addict, that I knew I wanted to do something big in sports. And uh, when I was in the seventh grade, my teacher asked me what I was doing and I was practicing my autograph. And I actually went home and told my mom, I changed the spelling and, and how my, I was going to be introduced. I would, took the H out of my name. I was no longer going to ever be Gradual Carter because I didn't think it was a famous name. And God bless my grandfather. You know, you're a great man. But, <laughs> but I just did. It, it wasn't a name. I just, it never seemed right. So at that time, there was a skinny white wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals named Chris Collinsworth. And people always say how white guys can't run and everything. But I had saw a tape on Chris Collinsworth. He was, he won the hundred meters in the state of Florida in high school. I was calling him white lightning. (laughs) He was about about six, five and man, he could run. And you never would think I changed my spelling of my name for him because I thought that much of him. And he was only, you know, maybe 20 miles down the road there in Cincinnati, Ohio, and me there being in Middletown. But I always wanted to do something great. And that was my mantra. Like I changed that in the seventh grade and I wanted to do opposite of what my brothers and play basketball and play football. I was very, very successful at a very, very young age. In high school, I was first team All-American, McDonald's, USA Today All-American, could have gone to any school in the country to play football and decided to stay home to play for the Ohio State Buckeyes. But along the way, you know, even though there, I'm still first team All-Big Ten as a freshman, started as a freshman, broke the freshman receiving records, touchdown records and all that. But there was still danger because at that time I had moved from experimenting with drinking and smoking marijuana to I just started dabbling in in the cocaine. And that was in the early 80s where people were struggling with crack cocaine and trying to sample that got me strung out and got me in a bad way early in my career, even though after I'd been drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles. So I almost lost my career. When you say, yeah, Chris, you're born in Ohio, I was actually born 241 miles from George Hallis Hall. George Hallis, the great coach, that's who the Hall of Fame, that boulevard right there is named after, 241 miles. But you're right, man. It was a million miles away, Mort, because, man, I put myself in jeopardy. I almost lost my career. I got suspended from the NFL for 30 days. And if I flunk one more drug test at the tender age of 24, to be suspended indefinitely and probably banned from the league. At that time, Buddy Ryan told me he couldn't trust me. And those are probably the biggest words I've ever heard besides from Reggie White when he introduced Jesus Christ to me. And I said, I can invite Christ into my life and become a born again Christian. When he said he couldn't depend on me. I mean, I would rather be called a deadbeat dad. I would rather be anything but that because When someone says you're not dependable, that means in all areas, you're not dependable. And I knew I was a better person than that. I knew I was a better man than that. And I use those words as a catalyst that now, always early, I try to stay late. To my friends, I'm a very, very good friend. To my brothers and sisters, I'm a good brother. To my mom, I'm a good kid. Um, And those associated with me in business, I'm a good partner. Because of those words, not because Buddy was wrong, but because Buddy was right. And I had to try to change my character. And in the process of that, Mort, 
I was able to find that, man, I had this skill to catch a football. I had a skill to be able to recognize routes. I had a skill to be able to concentrate across the middle. I had a skill to be able to keep myself in remarkable shape. I had a skill that, man, I want to play this game a long, long time. God gave me the ability to not get injured. And then he put a couple of franchises that really believed in me. Um, and that most importantly being the Minnesota Vikings and they invested in me and they empowered me. They made me a leader. They made me a community leader and they kind of highlighted me to the rest of the National Football League. Ultimately led to me getting the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award in that magical year, 1998, where I thought we were going to the Super Bowl. But no, my friend. We'll talk about that in a second. The left foot from heaven, <laughs> like the left foot from Joe Frazier. <laughs> We'll get to that in a second. I just want to rewind for a second and put a bow on on Philly and Buddy Ryan and Reggie White because you really said something to me, Chris, that resonates. You know, I haven't dealt with addiction the way you're describing it, so it's a little bit foreign to me, but I can certainly see how somebody could fall into that very easily, and it's very hard to get out. I have people in my life that are addicted and have that disease, and it's it's lifelong, and it's a battle, man. But the tough love that Buddy Ryan kind of gave you, because that's really what it was in a way, right? It was tough love. And then it was that gentle nudge into your faith journey that Reggie kind of came with. And I met Reggie White several times. You and I played Pro Bowls together, and Reggie was there. And he was such a powerful, powerful figure, you know, such a dominating man in the room. You knew when Reggie White walked in, even though he didn't say a word, you knew Reggie White was in the room. Besides the faith journey, I mean, having a guy like Reggie White on your football team, along with a very an alpha male like Putty Ryan, too, and you, you're an alpha male, too, you know, very, a lot of guys that are very dominating in their personalities, if you will, very type A. How did that work? How did you reconcile like your own fears with what information you were getting from Reggie? Because I think Reggie was just one of those guys that could talk to anybody and you could learn something from him. Yeah, I just think in life, we have the ability when you're with special people within 15 minutes, you kind of know who they are. And there was just something not of this world about him. And there was a, such a sense of humanity and love for so many people. And for me, when I got drafted, I was only 21 years old. And just being there and being influenced, seeing him, I think was even more than hearing him because he really walked the walk. The peace that he had in his life, that, that's what I really wanted. I didn't, all that chaos and ripping and running. And I was sick and tired of that at a very, very young age. That, the peace that he had, how he could sit back and not necessarily be perfect, but be content was what I was looking for. And I never had a man. I was just about to go there with you because you're searching for a father figure maybe, right? Right. But you think, because I have really good coaches and um, my mom was a hell of a woman, but kids are meant to be raised by a couple. One personality might not have it. And with all the economics and health, like you need to build a balance. Kid needs at least two parents. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? As a sounding board, life experiences, leaning on them. So um, I think sometimes we just take for granted when we say a father figure. Human beings need to be loved. I don't care if it's a man. I don't care if it's two women loving them. Human beings need to be loved. And when Reggie White 
told me he loved me, regardless of what I, whatever I was going to do, it shocked me because I, I started thinking, I was like, never had a man tell me he loved me. Hmm. I'm in an NFL locker room and Reggie White, one of the greatest football players ever, he's the one to do that. So I knew he was special and I knew he had a special connection to my life. I just didn't know all the ramifications and I didn't know I wasn't going to have him forever. But once I went to Minnesota, people forget Reggie a couple of years later, end up changing the paradigm in the NFL with free agency. Oh, gosh. He sued the NFL, allowed them to use his name, and he's in Green Bay. Man, Reggie and I are playing twice a year against each other, and we're talking three or four times a week. So when it came full circle, uh, we weren't teammates, but we were brothers as far as the gospel, and he was still the most powerful man. And probably I would say the person had the biggest influence, especially on a very, very young and immature, and a, a guy's life was chaotic in Chris Carter. Good question, no more. Good question. I get lucky once in a while, you know. <laughs> he he influenced me, bro. He was uh, he, he was just he was a quiet giant, and the good ones leave us too early. I just man, it was devastating when he passed. Reggie's not too different than Sam Mills. Oh man, now you're hitting me. Now you're hitting me right in the gut. People don't recognize the great men that you encounter when you play sports at its highest level. Yeah, do you have a lot of fun? Yeah, you do have a lot of fun. Do you see some of the most athletic people you've ever seen? Yes, the most athletic. But when it comes down, you see people that have, I mean, they are the salt of the earth and people that you would, people think as a teammate, man, I would do whatever for this guy. There are guys in that team that, you would give the shirt off your back to literally because the type of human beings that they were. Sam Fields, I know that you were around him. Field mouse. Man, he was amazing. Five feet, <laughs> eight, maybe, yeah. you know? But he'd hit you like a freight train, that middle linebacking position, that inside linebacker with, you know, with the Dome Patrol. I mean, we had Pat Swilling, Ricky Jackson, the late Vaughn Johnson now, and the late Sam Mills. God bless them. You know, they uh, they brought it. And you knew when you were playing the New Orleans Saints, you were going to come up against four of the greatest linebackers in the history of the game and great men. Absolutely. And that's one of the things with the Hall, you know, because really – your Hall of Fame bust is typically the last thing you're ever going to get as a sports accomplishment. That's it. And every year I go there, I see these men. I see Lynn Swan. I see Lim Barney. And I'm, I'm so attracted to what they're doing as men that I have to recalibrate my goals every year after <laughs> seeing them. John Randall, um, oh. a guy like yourself, like, Morton Anderson's not going to be doing a podcast, man, after he gets done playing football. Like, he's not into the game like that. Oh, okay. Don't fool yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love the game. And listen, the game came to me. I didn't come to the game. It apprehended you. <laughs> it handcuffed me. It took me for ransom, and I stayed, and I was happy. I didn't want anybody to rescue me. No one. I was fully involved. Right. There was no happier place than you on a football field. On Sunday afternoon. <laughs> and listen, you brought up 1998, which 
that Vikings team who set scoring records, mm-hmm. and you had Randall Cunningham and Randy Moss on the other side, a rookie, and the greatest possession receiver at the time, and maybe in the history of Chris Carter, who could tiptoe through the tulips on that sideline any old time he wanted to and catch a ball that seemingly to others looked like that's uncatchable. You would somehow stretch, get a fingertip on a ball, and stay in bounds. Talk to me about the 98 team, and then I'll give you my experience from my point of view in the championship game, and we'll leave it alone forever. No, it's awesome. It was. <laughs> I just, I believe that certain things are meant to be. And the 98 season was a magical season. People forget, we started the season with Brad Johnson as our starting quarterback. I was on the golf course in the offseason, and our general manager, Jeff Diamond, called me and said, hey, man, what do you think about Randall Cunningham as a backup? I said, well, he's, he's laying marble in Las Vegas. He's got a marble. <laughs> And he's like, he's thinking about coming out of retirement. And Coach Green asked me to call you. And I was like, well, who are the other guys you're, you're thinking about signing? And there were a couple guys that started some games in the league and everything. I was like, man, Randall's way better than all those guys. I don't care what kind of shape he's in. Like, he can throw the ball. He has a natural throwing motion. He'll be able to throw the ball. And with the weapons that we have, we had just drafted Randy. <laughs> and Jay. Reed and myself had four combined thousand yard seasons together. So I was like, Robert Smith, Leroy Hort, man, absolutely. So Brad gets hurt in the second game. Randall goes on to have an MVP type season. Randy has a magical rookie season, but we really were taking every game week by week. And we ran off seven wins to start the season. We knew it was going to be a magical season. We lost in Tampa. And then we ran off the last eight games of the season to go into the playoffs. So in the playoffs, we played the first week against in the after a bye. We played against uh, um, Arizona. You killed Arizona, yeah, and Aeneas Williams, and then the Falcons. I had a lot of family from Atlanta that were going to be in town. I had my college roommate William White was the strong safety. Eugene Robinson and myself were very very good friends. So we knew that it was going to be a battle. And during the course of the game. We had a couple opportunities to really maybe take a 17-point lead. Moss dropped a touchdown earlier. Um, my man, the uh, the right defensive end. Chuck Smith fumble on Randall. Right before halftime. We were up by Big. 10. And to decided me, that's to drive. They caused the fumble. You guys scored on the next play. And from that, we had our hands full. From the start yeah. of the second half, we lost five starters because it was a very physical football. And by the end of regulation, the Falcons were as good as us. So now it was just a matter of a break here or there. So Gary misses the kick um, late in the game to give you guys an opportunity to come down to score to tie it up. But going into overtime, we were not the same team in overtime. And it was just a matter. I think we had the ball two times or three times. It was just a matter of time before they got you in range to be able to put us out of our misery. So for me, we probably would have four or five starters to miss, miss the um, Super Bowl. So we wouldn't have been a good match for the Denver Broncos. But I do believe in fate. It was not our day. Even though we had a great year, it was not our day. Did the Vikings look ahead to the Super Bowl and anything? I can tell you absolutely not. But people say, well, was the team overconfident? There is no team in the history of the league that's won 15 games and didn't have a hell of a lot of confidence. 
<laughs> so now I'm going to give you my perspective okay. on that same experience that you just so eloquently put out there. <laughs> I, I know you can't wait to hear it. Yes. <laughs> so we are 14 and two and we're the road dog. Mm -hmm. We had just beaten the Niners at home and we have to go to Minneapolis to play the 15 and one Vikings. Now, when I got into the stadium and it really wasn't, I mean, you guys were up by about 10 points and could have been up probably by 17, like you alluded to. And the fourth quarter, I remember seeing, this is before Gary went out and had his kick that barely missed. Mm -hmm. I remember in the end zone, the fans had hung Super Bowl banners. There was a Super Bowl banner hanging, Minnesota Vikings. And I'm thinking to myself, not so fast here. Not so fast. That's just my, you know, because I'm competitive. I'm, I'm thinking I'm getting, I'm getting pissed. I'm a little mad because, you know, shit ain't over yet. No. And, and now we go down and I have to kick the extra point. And you might not remember this. You guys jumped offside. I had to kick the extra point to tie the game twice. twice. <laughs> I was more nervous for that than the damn kick in overtime. And as you said, it was back and forth. And I want to say it's about four minutes left in the game. Yep. And, and I remember standing on the sidelines. And, I, and I'm going to tell you something you probably didn't know. But the night before in the hotel, I do what's called cognitive intervention. Part of my getting ready for a football game was I would mentally rehearse. I would visualize situations in a game. And I would do it in real time and in slow motion. Mm -hmm. I would lay on my bed and I would meditate. And I would write in my I – I did a daily log. I wrote a diary every single day of my career. I have books. Wow. This thick. And I would make a diagram with a goalpost. I would chart all my kicks. I would film all my kicks. But on this particular Saturday before the NFC Championship game, I had written in my log, and the last kick I wrote was 38 yards left hash in overtime to win the game. And I had rehearsed it. Now, I don't know what's coming the next day. Wow. I don't know what's coming, but if it's coming, I'm ready. And I feel this about pressure, and I have said this a ton of times. Pressure only happens when your skill set doesn't match the task. That's when you feel pressure because it's out of your wheelhouse. So when this particular situation came in overtime, a 38-yarder from the left hash, imagine the familiarity that resonated, that just rushed yeah. over me. Yeah, And I'm looking at my teammates, and they're on their knees holding hands and praying. And I'm saying, they're not in charge. They're not driving the car. They're not in control. I am. I already know what's going to happen when I go on that field. I know that Coach Green's going to call timeout. He did. Mm -hmm. Because he wanted to ice me. Well, I said a long time ago, and I'm, I'm tongue-in-cheek now. You can't ice ice. No, no, no. You're, you're all right with me, man. You can't ice ice, baby. Absolutely. I like that. Yes. And so when I had it and I was lined up, everything slowed down for me. And you know, I know you know this. When you're in the zone, the game slows down. It really does. The ball looks big. The route looks clear to you. And to me, I saw that ball. It looked huge. And as soon as I put foot to ball, I started running because I knew that thing was right in the middle. It was just one of those, for me... Obviously, a defining moment because we were not expected to win that game, as you you know that we talked about. But from my perspective, it was like 
it was like a boxing match. The last one to get a shot in, man, mm-hmm. you know, he's going to get the decision on this one. And that's what happened. So truly one of the greatest games in the history of NFL playoffs. It was exciting, man. To be well part played, of well played. And I felt terrible for Gary and I, John Randall and you. And, and listen, you guys are friends. And when I see Johnny, every time I see John, he, he shakes his head at me. I go, come on, John, man, we're past that. He ain't past it. Well, John you, Randall is not past it. He doesn't want well, me to bring it up. You are much better. You're actually embracing it. Because I know we're getting close to the end. But before we get off the podcast, can you put yeah. your face up to the camera so I can, so I can punch it? <laughs> Let me get you some ice, ice, baby, for your eye. <laughs> Chris, can I get your opinion before we go? You played for two great franchises, the Eagles and the Vikings, and then you had a cup of coffee with the Dolphins. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to really spend much time with that. Right. But let's spend some time just talking about the current team, the current Eagles. Is Wentz the answer there? Is the head coach on a hot seat? A couple of years ago, he won the Super Bowl, let's face it. But you know how quickly it goes in the NFL. So talk to me about the Eagles, current Eagles, current Vikings, because they're kind of in a similar spot right now. Right. Well, both franchises, they do things the right way. Both of them have championship organizations around them where they are spending money. Um, Howie Roseman, the general manager there, is one of the best in the business in Philadelphia. Rick Spielman in Minnesota is one of the best. So they have championship expectations. They both have very, very good rosters. But over the last couple of years, because both of them have been in the playoffs, and they have a lot of players that they're spending a lot of money on. So this past offseason, they had to start making some decisions. And they got some older players, especially in Philadelphia, that they're paying some money to that aren't necessarily playing up to the level of that paycheck. Now, the Vikings had to make some tough decisions as far as veteran players they had to let go because they had some younger players emerging. Daniel Hunter, their star defensive end, he's not playing because of a back problem and might not play all year. So I don't know if their expectations they have as a franchise when they started the season were realistic. So now they get off to a tough start. I would say the biggest problem in Philadelphia is not only this year. I don't know who their training staff is, Morton, but they got too many players. I'm talking about high caliber players that have been hurt one, two, and three years. Jason Peters just put on injured reserve. Their left guard got hurt this offseason. But the last three years, like, I'm not questioning their medical staff, but more than I'm questioning their medical staff because they have too many key players that have significant injuries. So now what it's done is they're playing a lot of young wide receivers and Carson Wentz does not have the support around them. And because they won that Super Bowl with a backup um, in Nick Bowles, now pressing. So he is a franchise quarterback. But you can see him pressing and trying to do too much, and that forces him into making some bad plays. In Minnesota, Minnesota's a running team. I don't believe they have a dominant offensive line because Kirk Cousins is not a quarterback that you can depend on to throw the ball 40 times to be able to win the game. They are a defense-dominant running team. Their defense hasn't been as good. They've lost some guys through injury and through free agent. Everson Griffin, they lost him to Dallas um, because they got a lot of younger players that they were paying. So. Coming into the season, even though they have high expectations, they got a tough schedule. Start off with Green Bay, which this could be a magical year for them. So both franchises, great expectations, but some injuries, 
And I don't know if the Vikings have a championship offensive line to be able to protect Kirk Cousins, to be able to give him the type of time he would need to be able to make a, a tremendous playoff run. What's your relationship with Dalvin Cook? He's special. He is. Dalvin Cook, um, I've been fortunate to get to know him. He's from South Florida and a Florida State kid. So I've known about him for a long time. And my daughter works for the Vikings and um, okay. works for their foundation. And Dalvin Cook is one of the players that donates a lot of his time and is very, very close with her as far as her projects that she has there in the community. So I've been very fortunate just because of a couple situations that he's a great human being. His acceleration to the hole, he's a deep threat. Mm. Like both running backs in the league, they're not a deep threat, but he can score from anywhere on the field. And has really improved his hands out of the backfield. So quality man on and off the field. After coming into the league, he slipped to the second round because people had questions about his overall integrity, about his work ethic, and some other things off the field. Finally, I want you to tell me your secret to happiness. You've lived a a life that's pretty full right now. Mm -hmm. But you're far from done, man. We're not. I'm on the back nine. I can see the clubhouse. That's life, you know, 18 holes and how we get through it and the quality of how we get through it is really what determines our happiness, in, in my opinion. What's your secret to happiness? I, I, think, I think happiness, um, there's a lot of different definitions, but you have to be able to look yourself in the mirror. I'm fortunate that I'm in, I'm in my second marriage after being married a long time, 26 years. Um, the first time, I believe marriage works for me. Very, very happy in my marriage. I think that Having a partner to be able to share your life with, to walk through life at its different stages with, becomes very, very important. And to me, it's about my potential, not about what I have done, but what about what I will do. I'm mentoring three kids right now, three African-American kids that play for Cornell um, in the Ivy League. One's from Charlotte, one's from Chicago, and one's from Minneapolis. And having 22, 21-year-olds in your life and making contributions to their decisions every day, to me, that's monumental. I work for the league, so this will be my fourth different decade working with the National Football League since I was 21. So mentoring players of our future, mentoring our current players, and then talking about our, our great history, our 100 years in the National Football League and being involved with greats like yourself. So to me, this brought a lot of joy out of my life, but I believe in the purpose of my life and trying to achieve that purpose, finding your purpose and trying to achieve it. And sports has been it for me. So be able to do what you have a gift to do, be able to make a contribution to society and be able to make young, uh, young people make a contribution in their life. To me, that's as happy as I could be, man. <laughs> Purposeful living is when you do what you like to do with the people you like to do it and you make an impact that is sustainable and everlasting like a Reggie White yes. and like a Chris Carter. And my day is better for having spent some time with you, brother, and my day is much happier. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Absolutely, man. God bless you and your family, man. I don't think I've ever come away from a conversation with CC and not learned something. And it could be, you know, from a mistake that he had made or a takeaway from a lesson learned. Just uh, powerful stuff. Really enjoy hanging with Chris. It was a great conversation. I'll have more on Chris in my game winner segment at the end of the podcast. 
But Freeze Pops, before we get to your conversation with Kevin Rogers, I guess we got to talk about our next Twitter giveaway, don't we? Yeah. So first of all, congratulations to the winner of the Morton Anderson's Boot Camp t-shirt from last week. But this week's giveaway, we're bringing back the Hall of Fame Left Shoe Series. (laughs) You hear that? You hear that? Freeze. <laughs> giving it the old smell test before we officially give I, it I, away here. I, I hope everybody has allergies out there. I hope <laughs> your sniffers are bad because if you're the lucky winner, there's a shoe coming your way that has seen better days. <laughs> but it's got a signature on it, and it was worn by a Hall of Fame left foot. So mm. this thing... Yummy! not your average stinky (laughs) shoe. This thing is legit. So this is how you can win it. Morton is going to tweet out a picture of the Hall of Fame left shoe Mm -hmm. from his Twitter feed. Mm -hmm. We are going to retweet that tweet from at Great Dane Nation. You're going to go ahead and retweet Morton's tweet. You're going to follow at Great Dane Nation. And that's going to enter you in the contest for your chance to win a legendary pair of shoes worn by a legendary foot. Morton Anderson. <laughs> That's all I got. So guys, go ahead and do that. You're going to see that on Thursday morning, Hurley Morton's shoes up for grabs. <laughs> You're going to be doing a lot of smelling of those shoes. If you get a chance to win, send me, send us pictures of, of you with the shoe. We'd love to see you. You don't have to have your snout in it. But, you know, maybe be a pictures in your favorite jersey, holding up the shoe. That would be cool for me. I'd like to see that. Or maybe they put their foot in the shoe. Oh, even that, better. Well, yeah, is that, I was going to say, is I that would say wear two, sock, wear two socks. <laughs> two socks would be uh, wise on this thing. <laughs> All right. Let's check in with Kevin Rogers from Vegas Insider. VegasInsider.com is the global leader for sports gaming information, and it's your authority for the newest and best sports gambling podcasts. Every week, we're going to be joined by our Vegas Insider experts to make us a little smarter. And this week, we welcome back Vegas Insider expert and host of the Bet and Collect podcast, Kevin Rogers. Kevin, what's going on? Tom, good to be back with you. And make sure you check out the latest from Kevin on VegasInsider.com. He's got podcasts, picks, the man does it all. And you got to follow him on Twitter at VI Rogers. And Kevin, with Chris Carter joining us on the podcast this week, I think the Eagles would be a great place to start. They're hosting the Giants on Thursday Night Football this week. They sit at 1-4-1 on the season, currently good for second place in the NFC East. What a terrible division. (laughs) And uh, I want to know, Kevin, what's the deal with the Eagles? What's going on there? What's the deal with the 2017 Super Bowl champions? Is it time to move on from Wentz? What's your assessment? I mean, they could probably use Chris Carter and Fred Barnett and Calvin Williams and all those other guys because Carson Wentz has no one to throw to. And the problem is they have all these injuries. And look, that we can't absolve Wentz necessarily just because of injuries. I mean, he hasn't played well either. He's thrown a bunch of interceptions. I think it's nine this year. And uh, look, like you mentioned, the NFC East, after seeing the egg that Dallas laid on Monday against Arizona, and granted, they're without their quarterback. Now it's all up for grabs. And what's funny is that the Philadelphia Eagles and even the New York Giants, to a certain extent, 
they still have a shot to win this division, which is absolutely insane. And the Eagles, if they could win this, they get Dallas coming up, and all of a sudden they could be in cruise control of the division where the Giants, who lose Saquon Barkley early in the season, and Daniel Jones really hasn't turned into the quarterback that a lot of people thought, they're still alive in the division, which is just a sad state of affairs. So that's what makes this game meaningful on Thursday night. But when you look at some of the numbers, the Giants, they've covered so far on the season in all three games on the road, even though they're 0-3 straight up. That's good. And the Eagles have not been a good favorite either. Well, they lost outright to the Rams. They had that tie against Cincinnati that they were a, a favorite in. And they lost to Washington out of the shoot up 17-0. I feel like that game, they were up 17-0. You figured, all right, the Eagles, you know, they're going to be the favorite of the NFC East. And from there, it's just been deflating. So, I mean, I prefer more of the total in this game. I think that these teams can score. Their defenses aren't good. I know the offenses haven't been good, but the defenses have been bad. So I like more of the total here. I just think this game is such a toss-up. And the Giants have actually played well in Philadelphia. There's been a road team, I want to say dominated series, because the Eagles have dominated it. But the road team has done a good job of covering, I mean, maybe lean Giants. But I don't have a strong play on it because these two teams stink. They're both so bad. So let's move on to a matchup of two really good teams. We got the Steelers at Titans. Titans are favored by one point in this one. Steelers opened up as two-point favorites. Derrick Henry continues to look like a robot amongst mere mortals. Big Ben continues to look great at 38 years old. Both defenses with tons of talent. Kevin, who do you got coming out of this one 6-0? and You know, I mean, this is one of those games, Tom, you sit back and just watch. I think it's a very hard game to bet. And like you mentioned, the Steelers opened as the favorite. And this one flipped to Tennessee now as a short favorite. Tennessee now playing a third straight home game where they dominated Buffalo as a home dog on that Tuesday night and had the exciting win over Houston. And like you mentioned, Derrick Henry, I mean, the way he's playing, it's it's remarkable. And what he's, I mean, the guy, look how fast he looks on a 92-yard touchdown run and those other guys look very slow even though you know he's no burner himself but just an amazing athlete Derrick Henry and Ryan Tannehill has played extremely well and you look at Pittsburgh I feel like this has been a team that hasn't really been tested and I know it's unfair to say because you got who you have on your schedule and Cleveland had won four straight and the Steelers destroyed them this past week, but also they beat the Giants, who aren't good. They beat the Broncos when Drew Locke got hurt. I'm not going to call Denver any kind of great team. They beat Houston, who's been a complete dumpster fire. I would lean Tennessee here just because of the way they've been playing with the momentum. I mean, Pittsburgh has momentum. They're 5-0, and but I just think that Tennessee staying at home once again, the line movement may dictate Titans. Let's talk about another undefeated team, the Seahawks heading to Arizona. The Seahawks are three-and-a-half-point favorites. They opened up as two-and-a-half-point favorites, so up just a point. And this is the first time Seattle has played an NFC West rival so far this season. And like you mentioned, the Cardinals coming off that blowout victory in Dallas. Kevin, why are the Seahawks road favorites? I mean, it's easy. They're undefeated, you know, So and, and they should be. And, you know, when you look at Arizona, Arizona's got a really they, – they have – Good defensive numbers. I don't want to call them a really good defense. They have good defensive numbers. But let's break this down, okay? They're coming off back-to-back wins over the Jets and Cowboys. They allow 10 points to the Jets. We could probably get you, Morton, Dick Butkus, Chris Carter, Archie Manning. We probably get all of them on a team and maybe score 10 against the Jets. I think that's very possible. That's how bad the Jets are right now. But they beat the Jets by 20. They beat Dallas bad, and yes, we can't put it all on Andy Dalton because Ezekiel Elliott fumbled twice, so that's not helpful. 
But you see the drop-off, like I said before, from Dak to Andy Dalton. So they gave up 10 points each of those games. Before that, they gave up 31 to Carolina, who is kind of hit or miss offensively. But they gave up 15 to Washington, who's not a very good offense. Gave up 20 to the 49ers, who have struggled offensively this year, and 26 to Detroit. So the point is, is that Arizona's defensive numbers have looked better because of the recent competition. Seattle's coming off the bye. They had that one-point win over Minnesota a few weeks ago. And the offense, they've scored at least 27 in every game. The worst offensive performance was against Minnesota. Before that, I mean, they scored 35 against the Patriots, 38 against Dallas, who's not good. We know they're the worst defensive team in the league. 31 against the Dolphins, 38 at Atlanta. I just think that Seattle off the bye here, and they've had a pretty good track record at Arizona over the years. They held the Cardinals to 10 points at home last year, 17 the year before, 16 the year before, 6 the year before, 6 the year before. And yeah, Kyler Murray wasn't a part of a lot of those teams, but this has been a road-dominated series. I got to back the Seahawks here as a favorite. Kevin, the last game I want to run by you is the Buccaneers at Raiders. Bucks opened up as two and a half point favorites. That number now up slightly to three. But remember, the last time we saw the Raiders, they were beating the Chiefs in Kansas City 40 to 32. Kevin, what type of ball game are we going to get on Sunday Night Football? Well, it's going to be exciting, and it's terrible that there's going to be no fans there at Allegiant Stadium just because you get Brady and the Bucks out there coming off this huge win against Green Bay this past Sunday, and they scored 38 in a row and a great bounce back for Tampa Bay after they lost to Chicago the week before. You cannot deny what Tampa Bay has done defensively this year, their rush defense towards the top of the league. They allowed a touchdown to Green Bay, whose offense was on fire before they faced Tampa Bay. They allowed one touchdown to Chicago. They allowed one touchdown to Denver. They allowed two touchdowns to Carolina. New Orleans and the Chargers each had a pick six in those games, so that made those scores look a lot better than they were. Tom Brady's playing very well. I know how much of a Tom Brady fan you are. Love the guy. But when you look at the Raiders, and you mention the victory at Kansas City, I almost feel like the bye was a bit of a momentum killer for them, that they go in and beat the Chiefs as 11-point dogs. Really good win to snap a two-game skid. Third time the Raiders are a home dog this year. They beat the Saints already on Monday night, but they lost to Buffalo. Look, the Raiders have played good competition. We can't take that away from them so far in the season. And what's funny is the team with the worst record out of the teams they played is New England. And when you look at it, that right now out of the five teams they played, the one with the worst record is New England. Granted, at two and three. But still, I think that Tampa Bay playing this Vegas team that's so up and down. You don't know you're going to get offensively from them. I feel like Tampa Bay is clicking, and they know they're on the big stage at Las Vegas coming up on Sunday night. I'm going to back the Bucks here to beat the Raiders. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us again. And before I let you go, tell everyone what you're working on and where they can find it. Well, we're working on like everything, it feels like. But at least uh, after this week, baseball's done. And then really the last week of October and about – until Thanksgiving, it's all football, which is crazy. You have no NBA, no NHL. Baseball will be done. You have all NFL. You have all college football. You got Maction, Fun Belt. You got it all during the middle of the week before college basketball starts at the end of November. So it's going to be football heavy in November, which we haven't seen in a very long time. So we're looking forward to that. We got our videos. We got the Bet and Collect podcast. So we are busy, Tom. 
And remember to check out VegasInsider.com slash GDN for your free weekly pick for the NFL weekend. That's VegasInsider.com slash GDN. Kevin, thanks for the time. All right, Tom. Thank you. And now, Morton Anderson's game winner. Be a wide receiver in the NFL requires sure hands, speed, agility, and confidence. To be elite and thought of as one of the best of all time at the position demands and calls for intangibles that only a handful possess. I'm talking about intuition, body control, courage, and selfishness. All of the traits that can easily be classified as obsessive and single-minded of purpose behavior. The greats have it, but more importantly, they have it. Jerry Rice, Randy Moss, Steve Largent, Marvin Harrison, Michael Irvin, and Chris Carter have it. The first time that I met Chris, I noticed his eyes. They were intense, piercing, and trained on me like I was a football about to be caught on a 15-yard comeback route. Intimidating for sure, but also refreshing in this time of, I only have a few seconds and I'm gonna look away now over there because I'm sure they're more interesting than you. You know the situation where you're left standing by yourself in mid-sentence? That will not happen with Chris Carter. He engages and commits to be fully involved. I saw it firsthand with my son Sebastian at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He had met Chris in the elevator and entered the lobby of the hotel with Chris immersed in conversation. A big smile from my son said it all. He was meeting someone that he looked up to and respected. More importantly, he was with a legend who was spending his time with him. That was powerful and told me everything that I needed to know about Chris Carter. To say that life has been easy for Chris would be misleading. The route he has run through life so far has been full of twists and turns. Decisions and choices were made, wrong turns, construction zones and do not enter signs ignored, consequences delivered in the open and lessons learned. Chris Carter, like all of us, is a human being who's under construction and whose journey depends on those lessons learned earlier. The most impressive element of his being, I think, is the fact that he recognizes his past demons, learns from his mistakes, and becomes a better, more nuanced human being because of it. I choose to celebrate that with Chris. In the NFL, he ran the sideline, tiptoeing in bounds routes better than anyone in history, and judging from the smile on my son's face that day in Canton, Ohio, his route running has never stopped, and now they're crisp, clean, and beautiful. We'll see you next time. Great Dane Nation is presented by VegasInsider.com, the global leader in sports gaming information, and your authority for the newest and best sports gambling podcasts. A big thanks to Chris Carter for joining us this week, and thanks to Kevin Rogers and the team at Vegas Insider. 
Remember to visit VegasInsider.com GDN for your free weekly pick for the NFL weekend. Great Dane Nation is available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review today. 